runasradio.com. You're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell and Greg Hughes. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 58 with guest Aaron Welker, recorded Thursday, May 8th, 2008. Run As Radio is produced each week by Pwop Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. Hi, this is Richard Campbell. You're listening to Run As Radio. With me, as always, my co-host, Greg Hughes. Hey, everybody. How are you doing, Richard? I am well, sir. How is Portland today? That's good. It's kind of gray, but uh, we've had a couple nice days. I got the boat out last weekend and had a lot of fun. Nice. Yeah. Out on the salt? No, on the freshwater, on the river. Went down the Willamette River. And uh, it's a little, just a little boat uh, you know, and a little jet drive, so it has this intake port. It sucked up a stick and... You know, developed an analog problem, as they say. Ah, very nice. But, uh, yeah, you know what they like, say a boat is? It's a hole in the water you throw money into. Pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> the, the money that you put into the boat initially is the small part. I think. And, uh, <laughs> it's the ongoing, uh, keeping it going and fixing it that that really uh, drills into your bank account. Absolutely. But it, it was a lot of fun. It's uh, nice that spring is coming up and everything's turning green. Yeah, it's all good. And with springtime comes TechEd US. So we're going to be there for the IT week in Orlando. That's the second week of June. Yep. Sounds like we have a lot of fun things coming up. Of course, we're going to be doing Speaker Idol. Again. I uh, yeah. have some have some panel discussions on the stage, and we'll we'll make some run-as shows uh, from that, and, uh, and a whole variety of other things. Well, and, and TechEd is such an amazing opportunity to talk to some amazing folks from Microsoft. There's really no better place to go to get access to really remarkable talent around the products that we have to use every day. Yeah, just a huge number of people who, you know, if you're a, uh, you know, a blog reader and you read, you know, uh, the things that are published on, uh, MSDN and the TechEd, uh, you know, sites and whatnot, then, you know, you realize that there's a large number of people at Microsoft that have these huge brains and this capacity to be able to explain things and to meet them in person and to have a conversation is really a valuable thing. And we're going to talk to as many as we can and capture them on recordings and uh, publish them here. Yep. It's going to be a lot of fun. And if there's some shows you'd like to hear from, hear about particular people or particular discussions, send us an email, info at runasradio.com. Your suggestions are what drives this show. All right, Greg, let's introduce Aaron. Aaron Welker has spent 25 years in information technology development, management, database administration, and business intelligence. She began working with SQL Server in version 1.11, wow. analysis services, SSIS, DTS, and reporting services since their inception. She was privileged to be a member of the Project Real team and has written white papers on data warehousing in SQL Server 2005. Her current focus is performance point planning. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you. SQL 1.11. Yes. When was that? That was early 90s. Yeah, no kidding. And that was the Sybase product entirely, I imagine. Exactly. Cool. And so it had all Uh, that. uh, It's come a long, long way. Well, just the the break (laughs) away from Unix and and that whole sort of space is amazing, really. Yeah, we were under OS 2. I remember jumping. I jumped in at about 4.2. And that was back when, uh, and and that's when NT first came along. And nobody thought NT was going to go anywhere. I really liked it because it hadn't, it was the, NT 3.1 didn't have a GUI. 
It was all command line, and I love that. Well, it actually saved our lives. We went live with NT maybe a couple of months after it came out, but before that we were planning on going with OS2, which our test just said will not work. So we took a gamble on NT, and it paid off big time. And even then, that old version of N- that early version of NT had NTFS, and that was really the key to the whole thing. Yeah. But one thing, it's funny, I was just thinking about this the other day, how we were playing with SQL Server 1.11, and 12 meg of RAM was as far as it would go. Wow. 12 <laughs> megabytes. <laughs> 12 That's a whole meg. different world. We thought that was a lot. It was tons. And, and Project Real, what was that? Have you not heard of Project Real? I have not heard of Project Real. Really? Well, that was a Microsoft-initiated project, um, and they brought in some partners, and, and I got to be one of them. And it was all about taking a real-life customer and taking them from SQL Server 2000 and migrating them to 2005. Now, we actually, and the customer was, Bar- was Barnes & Noble, Cool. who was running a 1.2 terabyte uh, database, data warehouse. And so it was actually not converting Barnes & Noble themselves, but to take their data and um, mask it and then go through a best practices scenario and then produce um, source code, white papers, basically here's how you do it or how we recommend you do this. So the right way to migrate from 2000 to 2005. Yeah, and more so since analysis services and SSIS were such big jumps from prior versions of the product. How do you utilize those uh, utilities properly? So not just moving the database itself, but going into the new uh, uh, data warehousing or OLAP tools. Right. Right. So uh, uh, we wrote... I didn't personally, but members of the team wrote uh, a full-fledged ETL on SSIS and then published best practices on that. My focus was on partitioning, which, of course, was new in 2005, right. and how to best implement that. So actually taking tables and spreading them across multiple machines? Uh, no, partitioning actually can only be done within a database. So it was spreading a database across uh, potentially multiple disks. Right. And the key with partitioning that when I present, certainly one of the first things I say is this is all about management. So if you have a multi-terabyte database, you know, how, how do you create indexes? How do you back up? How do you do all of these things? And especially in a data warehouse where a huge portion of the database is potentially inactive. You know, no data is changing, so there's no need for that data to participate in some of those maintenance activities. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. Last month's data is not going to change again, so why keep it in the active partition? As you're maintaining your indexes, as you're doing your backups, uh, all those things that, as a DBA, we know we're supposed to do to keep a healthy database, uh, partitioning allows you to do 
virtually all of those activities at a partition level. So instead of maintaining two terabytes of data, you're actually maintaining maybe a hundred or so gig. And we all know how to do that. Well, I don't know if you know how to do that, but. Well, sure. But, you know, <laughs> they, they, these are all things we're, we're concerned about. And, uh, I mean, partitioning is an interesting, the trick is how, how do you automate that so that it's relatively painless? How do I know when it's next month's data and just move on? Do I actually have to copy stuff around or does that just happen innately? Uh, well, actually, that's one thing we did do as part of Project Real is um, built some routines into the ETL process so that it says, okay, hey, it's a brand new, actually, Barnes & Noble partitioned on a weekly basis. So... Uh, during the ETL process, it would say, hey, we've got a new week. Let's, let's see if we've already created this partition. If we haven't, let's create it. And uh, it automates basically dealing with that data and making sure that it goes into the right partition. So does the application know it's switching from partition to partition? Or is it just speaking to stored procedures? How does that connection work? Well, uh, the beauty of partition tables is... Uh, in essence, in 2005, every table is partitioned, but most tables just have a single partition. So uh, every table you refer to as this comprehensive table name that if it's partitioned into 100, tab- 100 partitions, for example, you only query the table and then underneath SQL Server uh, collects the data from the various partitions. And then you're defining a partitioning rule that I would actually allow it to exactly. know where to write. A partition function. I see. So in a data warehouse, for example, uh, in probably 99.9% of the cases, we're going to partition on a date. Right. I, I mean, because that, that's the one thing we can count on. Time goes by. Right. And so for most data, most journaling type of data, like sales data and so forth, you're just going over time and, and you're just setting parameters, whether it be a week or a month? Correct. And we actually did some performance testing as well. Uh, I think it was during Project Real. I've done it at some point <laughs> uh, regarding um, as you're bringing in data in a data, a data warehouse, um, probably... 80% or more of it is going to the most recent partition. So what we found is when you're updating one partition heavily, it's probably best to switch out that partition to an external table, drop the indexes, you know, strip constraints and everything that will slow down a load, do our updates, re-add all that stuff, and then switch it back into the partition table. Don't you run a risk when you do that strip down and reload, which obviously is faster, that then you don't you have to manage uh, constraints that can't be reapplied, violations in the data? Well, hopefully your ETL process is, um, number one, taking care of that. And also in very large data warehouses, oftentimes we don't keep constraints. And the reason why that is, is for, for performance purposes. And given the fact that our updating of the data warehouse is so heavily managed through the ETL process, we can be pretty sure that um, the ETL programming has made sure those, those uh, relationships or constraints have been 
right? There's only one way to load a data warehouse. That's through the ETL process. And it essentially is handling all the constraints for you. So why right, leave them in the data? As opposed to uh, an uh, OLTP application where that those updates are coming from all over the place. Right. It makes a lot of sense. Now, I've always thought of partitioning in the context of OLTP, uh, for really for performance reasons, that because I can keep my active set relatively small, I'm able to uh, to uh, keep things quite nimble in that respect. Indices aren't too big and so on. But uh, how does this apply in data warehousing? Well, um, I have found that the performance gains in a data warehouse of, on partitioning are relatively small. And I guess it depends on the uh, scenario, but a data warehouse by definition is oftentimes spanning a very large period of time. So the gains you might get in as far as um, being able to query subsets of the data are usually negated by the overhead of putting it all back together again, so to speak. So, is so really no- I'm not saying that you will gain nothing from in terms of performance with partitioning. I'm right. saying uh, it's primarily a manageability feature, not a performance feature. Yeah, why that change you may it? May sometimes get performance benefits from. Okay, that makes a lot of sense to me. What What about the backup side of things? I know that historically people have had a hard time backing up large amounts of data. Um, does the partitioning, it seems to me that if you can partition and split things up, you might be able to improve your backup performance. Right. And backups, if I recall, I've been in performance point world for a few months now, so I'm having to switch gears again. Uh, If I recall, you cannot back up at a partition level. But what you can do is back up a file group. So if you align your partitions with file groups, then essentially you have implemented a partition-level backup system. So, for instance, if uh, my most current partition is on a file group that's separate from all the other uh, partitions, then I can just back up that file group, and I've essentially backed up the partition. Now, there's um, if you get into a recoverability scenario then the main thing you got to worry about is recovers kind of like to make sure everything's in sync. And the way you do that is to make those file groups, those that partitions, older partitions reside upon uh, read-only. And at that point, the restore says, oh, you've been read-only as of this point, so I know I don't have to worry about log um, time checking. And that's an interesting element, I think, of partitioning here is being able to mark off. It's one table, yet pieces that are marked as read-only. Right. I, I just find that fascinating. It's a partially read-only table. Well, and I kind of like that as a, a DBA because then I can be sure that nobody's going in there ad hoc and doing something outside of the the routine system. You are limiting the range of damage to a very large table, effectively. It's another kind of constraint. Right. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. 
Yeah, it's a fantastic idea. I, I, I'm the step back guy here. So why don't we step back one second? And I, it's my understanding so that we have, and, and I've, I've managed uh, database administrators. Uh, I've never been one myself. So I, I'm kind of the, uh, the IT management guy that doesn't do anything. He just manages the people that do the real work, right? I've met people uh, like you. So for, <laughs> actually, I've been, I've been you in previous lives. <laughs> <laughs> and and so um I th- thinking from that perspective it's my understanding that in SQL Server 2005, and, and I've managed software teams that have taken advantage of this partitioning before, and I understand the benefits of it, but some of the nuts and bolts I, I don't really have a clue about. So, But there's a difference between a partitioned table, which we've talked quite a bit about, and a partitioned index, which you've touched on. But can you talk about the relationship between those and kind of how they how they impact each other? Or what do you think about like from an architecture standpoint, those sorts of things? Um, well, honestly, I don't know that I'm going to provide too much enlightenment there because what I generally do is align, as they would say, align my indexes, my index partitioning with my table partitioning. And in fact, if you think about it, if you create a clustered index, then that the partitioning function you use for your clustered index is your table function. And um, I, I think from the standpoint of manageability, I, I, I would have to stretch to find a scenario where you would then place non-clustered indexes using a different partitioning scheme because you want to keep them all together. So as you archive or uh, do various pieces of management, you want them all to kind of be aligned with each other. I was trying to imagine a scenario where it ever makes sense to not have the index partitioned exactly the same as the table. And I'm sure the scenario exists. Yeah, but, but it seems unlikely <laughs> to me, really. <laughs> I, I'm hard-pressed to think of it. The um, You mentioned, uh, you know, the, the sort of the physical disk partitioning. Um, what have you seen... I know that we we explored and actually leveraged that for some performance gains just in terms of uh, this may not be uh, data warehousing specific, but since we've touched on it, uh, but gains in uh, high I.O. scenarios. So where you have multiple tables, multiple databases, and you're, and you're doing okay, a lot so of I.O. Okay, so you're talking about um, segmenting pieces of the data on uh, disk subsystems? Yeah, f- physically separate, I guess, spindles, as you might call them. Or... Okay. Um, and I think I've seen a fair amount of that in 2005. I think this is a good point to um, point out um, a new behavior in c- coming up in 2008, and Eric Hansen would be proud of me for pointing this out. <laughs> um, there was an issue in 2005, or is an issue in 2005, if you have a query that um, queer- ends up examining a small number of partitions, more than one, but not many more than one. So let's say you're spanning two partitions. Right. Um, the way 2000 works is it will spawn a thread for each partition it queries. Now, is that 2000 or 2005? Oh, I'm sorry, 2005. Right. Thank you for, for clarifying okay. that. 
So if you have a big box that has 32 processors on it or more, you're greatly underutilizing the processing capabilities of that server. Well, because normally doesn't doesn't SQL Server 2005 allow multiple threads against a partition? It no. Now, if you're there's one caveat to that. If you are querying a single partition, right? Uh, then there's intra query intra partition querying, and it'll spawn as many threads as it deems. Okay, so if the, it's not that the table has to be only one partition, but that the query processor has figured out that the data I'm looking for is in one partition, and then it would use, could use multiple threads. Exactly. So this scenario actually came out of Barnes and Noble. Who, oh, really? Um, who partitions on a weekly basis. And so imagine if you have a query against it and I'm trying to remember. Well, you can kind of do the math. 52 uh, times, say, five years. So, you know, over 250 partitions. Right. And then they do a query that says, okay, compare the sales uh, from this week versus those last week. So I'm querying two partitions. And um, so then I'm go- going to spawn two threads. And it'll only spawn two threads. Only spawn two threads. And it gets worse than that. Let's say that I'm comparing sales today versus yesterday. And it's across the partition barrier. So you would have this query would behave pretty quickly most times because if I'm within the same partitioning, I'm spawning many threads. Right. And it comes back like that. But then... you. Know, once a week or one day a week, I'm spanning two partitions and suddenly the query gets slow for no reason. Right. So comparing Monday and Tuesday, lightning fast, comparing Sunday and Monday where it jumps the partition, it would suddenly decrease in performance dramatically. And from, from the outside, you'd go, what's going on? You'd just be totally <laughs> exactly. baffling. Exactly. So in 2008, they've changed the behavior to essentially throw all the threads at each partition and start start with partition one from the query, throw all the threads at that, return results, then go to the next one and go to the next one. So this is all being said to address the earlier point of how do you deal with the disk. Well, with this new behavior, you want each and every partition to to take full advantage of many disks, many spindles, so that any given partition will take full advantage of the underlying I.O. subsystem. Interesting. So now to talk about manifestation here, normally to split up partitions onto separate spindle sets, I would put them in separate file groups and then position the file groups on different spindle sets. But because of this threading behavior, only any one given spindle set is going to be used in a given query anyway. Because it's because only one partition is going to be worked on at a time for a given query. So, so if your strategy pre-2008 is to say, I'm going to spread partitions across um, their own kind of individual pieces of the I.O. subsystem in order to take advantage of that parallelism, 
that's not going to work in no, 2008. That was the whole vision of that was here. I'm going to put these three partitions that I all want to query on three separate sets of spindles thinking parallel execution will run all three spindles at the same time. But the threading constraint totally undermines that. I'm better off to spread those partitions across all of those spindles so that I just have as many because more spindles is always better. Right. And in essence, that I think they've implemented the best strategy for the most cases, which I'm sure that was their goal. Well, I've got to think this has got something to do with query consistency more than anything that ended up limiting the threads. Well, and that's kind of huge, especially if you have um, some C-level executives that ultimately or are submitting queries through whatever type of, of interface and one day it runs one way and, and the next day it runs a different way, then that's that's not good. That's one thing I learned as a as a as a database guy was don't make the executives uncertain and distrust the data. No oh, and and multiply <laughs> that about ten to a hundred times in a data warehouse. No, no kidding. Where you know yeah Oh, I get chills. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what other things have happened in 2008? I mean, obviously, this threading issue, I think, is a very important thing to understand, difference between 2005 and 2008. But have there, partitioning really only came to exist in 2005. So this is really version two we're looking at in 2008. Are there other major improvements or changes? Uh, the main one that comes to my mind and I'll take this moment to, to plug the blog because I blogged about it uh, probably about two months ago. Um, I actually found this out by reading Paul Randall's blog, who is, if you read his blog, you know he blogs much often and about some, some just the most juicy stuff. But, we are talking uh, about the guy who wrote DBCC, or at least led the team to write DBCC. <laughs> he knows yes. SQL Server very deeply. Yes, yes, he does. And um, he pointed out that there is a locking behavior change in 2008, and the default behavior does not change. However, uh, you have the ability to override the default locking behavior, and I'll probably not remember the minute details of this, but essentially, you have, uh, I think it was, if you, if you query um, various partitions, you were subject to the same lock escalation as if you had a single partition table. Right. In 2005, there was no concept of a partition lock. If you got an escalation above a, you know, a few pages where normally if it was only one table, it would lock the whole table. That still right. happened even and in a partition you know, table. No, it doesn't take much before it escalates to that lock. So right. if you're querying just a few partitions, suddenly you've locked everybody else out. Especially with the, and in thinking that the whole concept of a partition table is you're going to let it get massive. Right. Huge numbers of partitions. It's a vast table. To have that whole thing locked is kind of frightening. So in 2008, there is um, an option to override that behavior and have it consider the lock escalation at a partition level, not at the table level. So now we do have a partition level lock, but is it it's not, doesn't happen by default? By No, by default, which I, in a way I kind of question, but that again, I haven't really played around with this. So right. I, I, you know, I, and I'm sure they did when they were making these design decisions. 
But so the default is still that the escalate, and this is not necessarily how it takes locks, but when it can the the lock escalation level. Right. So uh, the default behavior, at least when Paul blogged about it, was still that it would consider the escalation to the table level. That's got to be consistency going back to previous versions. You don't want to change locking behavior when somebody upgrades. You know, you're exact. You're probably exactly right. That would, I mean, that would be my fir- my gut reaction is that that that's what well, you have to do. And, and you might also look at it as an ad- advanced options feature too. You probably don't want people playing around with that yeah. unless they really know what they're doing. Yeah, and, and usually if they know to go do that, then they've done their research. And so then you can also switch it over to a mode where it will just escalate to a partition level of a can. And, and if it's not part of the partition table, it still goes to a table and, and so on. I mean, it's a very interesting problem how to introduce this capability and not yeah, break and, things. Yeah, and, you know, you kind of got to consider, as you mentioned, 2005 was the first release with partitioning. Now, there were partition views in 2000. And I think partition views get a bad rap. Um, actually, they can sometimes outperform partition tables. So there's actually still kind of two partitioning options in SQL Server. Um, from a management standpoint, probably partition tables are the better way to go. But, and, but it's an interesting discussion because the idea of a partition view then is to not partition the table, just to do it in, at, at a view, merely a logical construct rather than actual table construct. Right. Right, and the problem with partition views that some customers experienced was you consider the partition view is just sitting on top of a bunch of tables that each one represents a kind of a partition, but the query optimizer views them each as their own individual table with potentially a different indexing strategy. Right. And therefore, it has to optimize or look for the best index method, access method for each and every one of those so your compile times can go through the roof. Yeah, you're getting a much more complex query plan to deal with all of that. Right. And in actuality, you may have the same indexes on each and every one, but the optimizer doesn't know that. No. You can't guarantee that. No, it can't guarantee that because it can be different. It has to at least check. So that's just going right. to take time. But it strikes and me that the partition view is really a, a intermediary step. If I've got an existing database where I haven't partitioned data, partitioning existing data isn't easy. That's a lot of work, isn't it? It it certainly can be. Actually, it's not. If you did partition use partition views in two thousand, it's actually a pretty easy move to partition tables. Okay, and that seems to be a sort of best practice approach that you're going to get more performance benefit out of actually partitioning a table, especially in two thousand eight with the new locking rules and so forth and a better threading model. Right. And uh, we've got, you You were talking about new features in 2008. There's actually another one I'm very excited about, and that's uh, index views. In 2005, uh, if you had index views on top of your partition table, basically you had to drop and recreate them every time you switched partitions in or out of the, ta- out of the partition table. Right. And... You might say, well, why is that such a big deal? Well, if you're doing a lot of querying on the relational database, 
a relational data warehouse. And when I say that, that's opposed as to just using it to source an OLAP cube. So if you're querying that data, uh, database, uh, index views can be great as summar- summarizations of data to really speed up those queries so that you're not constantly aggregating. It's like an intermediary aggregate, essentially. between Exactly. So you're so talking about running an OLAP cube in more of a real-time view rather than pre-aggregating the data. Right. And, and so essentially what you're using index views to do is exactly the same thing you do in analysis services right. to speed it up. You're pre-aggregating. However, in 2005, index views on a partition table are virtually unusable because the table's huge almost by definition. Right. And if you're having to recreate that index view, we could potentially be talking hours. You might as well recompute the cube, which is what you're trying to avoid in the first place. Right. So getting into this, I, I see this as really a significant improvement in folks who want to do real-time analysis where we're steadily loading data. And rather than going through that sort of load process and re-aggregation, we have these partition. It's the partition line index views is what you're talking about, where the index views right. is bound to the partition. That's storing the aggregate. So as data is being loaded into the partition, it's recomputing those aggregates. And then your real-time cube is able to just take advantage of those aggregates. Yeah, and and in actuality, I'm speaking more for. Uh, there are a lot of customers I've been to in the last couple of years who don't want to use analysis services. Really, I, I don't agree with that, but you know they have actually some good business reasons for that. Maybe they maybe it's a new skill set that they aren't prepared to to support, or maybe uh, one customer I had had a bad experience where somebody designed the cube, I would say not in the most desirable way because it was quickly um, deprecated as business rules changed. Right. So they had the bad experience and they said, we don't want to go that way again because we tried it and it didn't work. So and being a consultant, sometimes you have to, you know, recognize a battle that's not going to be won. Yeah, you're not going to win that one. How am I going to help these guys? And this is an, right. an alternative approach to that. It's a fascinating angle on you know some of the new capabilities we're getting with partitioning in 2008. It makes me wonder what we're going to get next. You know, they say Microsoft's technology is the ver- third version is always the great one. This is only <laughs> the second one. I wonder what they're going to do next. Yeah, well, um, my my number one of my number one wish lists is along uh, along the lines of index views is that they improve the optimization to where query more queries can take advantage of them. There's some matching rules that are in place that are easy to to uh, bypass. Uh, so there's just not enough sophistication in the query processor to take advantage of all of the limiting that partitioning provides. Right, and I and I know that the powers that be are aware of it, but as you know, there's only so much it can push into a release. Sure, but in, I find for the past few years, I found especially in 2005, I felt like I couldn't do much to a query plan anymore. Most of the time, when I went and looked at a query plan, it was right. You know what? <laughs> I I I I second that a hundred percent. There are so many times where it's like, oh, it's not doing that. Yeah. I know better. And yeah. 
You and, know, I force it to do it my way, and sure enough. Yeah, no, it was right. Yeah. But with some of these partitioning features, and arguably it's because they're new, this is where you would find that the query plan wasn't running efficiently because there were some elements that the query planner doesn't understand around the partition potentials. Uh, such as? Well, I'm just thinking, you know, exactly the way you were describing that partitioning, uh, that the query planner doesn't always take advantage of what partitions do for boundaries of data. Well, actually, and and I, I may have uh, said something other than what I meant. What I meant was indexed views. Right. So the beauty of index views is that you can have a query that goes directly against one of the t- uh, the tables that the index view covers, and the optimizer says, oh, well, I can get all that out of the index views, and it does that for you automatically. That's cool. But there are matching rules that um, have to be um, observed in order for that to happen. So if uh, if all the moons are aligned and, you know. But sometimes it doesn't happen and, and that's going to show up in a query plan that it, it doesn't come up with the best matching rule set. Right. It can take advantage of that. In fact, you can change the query to just send it to the index view. And, and the thing with index views, we're not talking about 10% performance improvement or even it got twice as fast, we can sometimes get a hundred times faster with an index view. Dramatic, dramatic improvements. It can be a huge performance benefit. It's nice to know as DBAs, we still have a job. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, I think we always will have a job. You know, I've been around, as your bio said, for for 25, more than 25 years now. And I think since day one, they said we're going to be out of a job in five years. And somehow it never seems to happen. Yeah. In fact, we make it more and more complex. So we're more dependent upon us. Yeah. No question about that. I know. I know I've seen indexes make and break commercial software that depends on, on SQL server. And if it wasn't for the DBAs, you know, there wouldn't be, there wouldn't be a product. Right. Right. Well, and as a consultant, uh, I've banked on the fact that Microsoft has created a product, several products, in fact, that on the surface are very easy to implement. But, you know, knowing what's going on underneath the covers um, can greatly enhance that implementation. Absolutely. Aaron, I think we're about out of time. Any final words? Um, not that I can think of. I'll mention my blog again, not so much to um, promote myself, but to promote various other SQL Server experts that are uh, on that site blogging about issues that are near and dear to our hearts. Right. And that's sqlblog.com slash blog slash Aaron underscore Welker. Aaron, thanks so much for coming on the show. That was great, Aaron. Thank you. Well, thank you. I, I enjoyed it. And we'll talk to you next week on Run As Radio. 